0: Thanks for the lead in. It's uh, terrific to see all of you here. I, I thought more people would lose that battle between mind over mattress type things. So anyway, good to see you. Uh, Daniel 6 is mentioned prior to this as uh, one of the more love stories in all of the Bible. And uh, the life lessons that come out of this uh, story are absolutely profound, and if we incorporate uh, those lessons into our lives, we'll be a whole lot better off. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture today uh, as we kind of work our way through this story, so just be prepared. I think most of it will be up on the screen behind you, but we're going to begin not so much in chapter 6, but the last couple of verses of chapter 5. Uh, That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean or Babylonian king, was slain. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. So the Babylonian kingdom has been destroyed. The Medo-Persian empire has now taken its place. Seventy years has passed since Daniel was brought into uh, the land of of Babylon, and now he's in the land of the Persian Medo-Persian empire. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and that over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss." So what we have here is a change from an absolute monarchy that existed during the Babylonian Empire to more of a delegated rule of Medo-Persia. And the more layered a government structure becomes, the more you run the risk of corruption. And so three commissioners are placed over the 120 satraps. So they, they were the ones that ran most of the kingdom, but they were overseen by three commissioners And these three commissioners would be probably the most trusted people in all of the Medo-Persian Empire, at least by the king. And Daniel, who is now in his 80s, happened to be one of them. Verse 3, Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the the entire kingdom. In other words, he was going to be right under Darius himself. Now, you want to just take note for just a a moment here of the words extraordinary spirit because that's what set Daniel apart from the other two commissioners. Daniel was in his 80s, and yet he had enthusiasm, he had competency. That old uh, vegetables and water diet that he had uh, to be subject to... (laughs) Worked pretty well for him here. Still in his 80s, cranking like crazy. Uh, The thought of being subordinate to Daniel uh, that the other two commissioners had is just not something that they wanted at all. And so they tried to do something about it. Verse 4, then the commissioners and satraps, Began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. But they could not find, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So, what we have an example of is uh, old fashioned professional jealousy. You have three commissioners, they're all co-equals, but now one of them, and that would be Daniel, was placed over the other two. And so what they do is they conspire to submarine the king's intentions. They're going to start digging for dirt in Daniel's life. They happen to think that Daniel was just as corrupt as they were, and they discovered otherwise. You see, there was no negligence, something that should have been done that wasn't in Daniel. There was no corruption, something that should not have been done that was done in Daniel. And so what they do when they didn't find any corruption, negligence, they strike at Daniel's religious life, and they want to make his commitment to God work against him. Verse 6, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king, and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All of the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together. That was a lie. Daniel didn't know anything about that. Because We've decided that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that everyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, and so it was. Now, it wasn't long before the decree was made public, and Daniel was on a, you know, faced a major decision. He was on the horns of a dilemma. But notice what he does. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered into his house, his roof, uh, in his roof chamber. He had windows toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. And then those last little phrase there, as he had been doing previously. You see, Daniel knew of the decree He knew the penalty, and it would have been very easy for Daniel to do a number of different things at that particular moment. He could have closed the windows that faced Jerusalem. Uh, He could have changed the times in which he prayed. He could have prayed while walking around. He could have prayed with his eyes open, but he didn't rationalize. He didn't do any of those things. He uh, said, You know what? I'm not even going to play their game for three months. I'm just not going to do that and go back to doing what I was doing or for a month. I'd go back to doing what I was doing before. Uh, he didn't do any of it. And so Daniel, in many ways, was both light and salt. Uh, followers of Christ are not to fully assimilate into our culture, but we're not to fully separate from our culture. Uh, and Daniel was both light and salt. You know, followers of Christ are, are to, to kind of carry on that kind of distinctive, be both light and salt, and that's how Daniel lived. Now, the other commissioners were kind of looking to climb the ladder, make a name for themselves. Uh, Daniel already had a name. You know, when I think about making a name for himself or for yourself, I think... Uh, of Genesis chapter 11. And the people in Genesis uh, chapter 11, which is last, uh, the last chapter in Genesis of the primal history before he gets into to, uh, Abraham and so forth. But in that, that particular chapter, the people were building a, ta- a tower. And it was called the Tower of Babel. And uh, in doing that, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Uh, see, without God, Human beings are always going to be self-namers. And we somehow believe if we can make a name for ourselves, if we can get a name, then we'll get uniqueness. Then we'll get significance. But Genesis 11, the whole thing just breaks down. The tower is never finished, and the goal of getting a great name uh, is never realized. The thing that we need to remember is just people who wanna follow the Lord is simply this, that we've already been given a name and an identity in Jesus Christ. You see, what he has done for us, what God is doing in us is really our defining factor. And so what Daniel does, he prays to God and he's discovered by the conspirators. And so what these conspirators do is that they go to the king and remind ki- the king of the injunction and, and the penalty. And the king says, that's right. It's uh, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, and it cannot be changed even by me. Now they say, And then they, then they lay the, uh, the accused before him, and they say, Daniel. Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. He keeps praying three times a day. This foreign misfit is finally showing his true nature by being disloyal to you, King Darius. And Darius was at that time incredibly upset because he had been tricked into signing a decree that threatened somebody that he loved and respected. But he had to do it, law of the Medes and Persians. And so he reluctantly gave orders for Daniel to be placed into the lion's den. Now, one writer describes the the lion's den. He said it was a large underground cavern divided uh, in the middle with a partition. And in the middle of the partition was a door that could be raised from the top. The idea is if you wanted to get the lions in one side of the den, you could put the food over there, they would go over there, and then you could close the the door on the partition and clean up the other side, if you please. So evidently, Daniel was lowered uh, on the vacant side uh, and sat in the lion's den, and then the idea was is that the doors would be open and the hungry lions would come in and absolutely devour him. So while Daniel was being lowered, the king made a very remarkable statement. This is King Darius. This is what he said to Daniel at the end of verse 16. He says, may your God, whom you constantly serve, deliver you. And then King Darius went back to his palace to spend a, a very sleepless and anxious night. Now in the morning, he gets up early in the morning and he goes over to the lion's den and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And there is probably a pause. But then Daniel said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. No desire at all for retaliation on Daniel's part. But King Darius uh, had his own idea for those who misused information. And he cast these unscrupulous individuals who tried to frame Daniel into the lion's den. And the Bible says somehow that they were actually devoured before they hit the ground. I'm not, uh, probably hyperbole, but we understand that the lions were pretty hungry at that particular time. And then uh, afterward, he issued a decree, the king did, testifying to the greatness of Daniel's God. Now, this story, uh, you know, you begin to think about the implications of this story, and it's not a promise of smooth sailing, oil on troubled waters, if you happen to be faithful to God. It's not a promise that you're going to get through life without a scratch. Uh, We know that because uh, somebody who was far more innocent than Daniel, who was also thrown into a den and a stone was poured over it, uh, poured over him, he was filled with wounds. There were all kinds of scratches on him. And the belief that somehow, that if you're faithful to God, that you're going to go through life, that I'm going to go through life without trauma, contradicts the very message and the life of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. Now, that's the story. What can be said about this story? And uh, I'd like to put uh, three thoughts before you, very simple, but uh, in some cases, I think very profound and good reminders for each one of us. Uh, The first uh, lesson we learn from the story... is that this is a story of freedom from the past. You see, Daniel says, My God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. It was probably the same angel, if you please, that was existing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, This angel really doesn't deliver from the outside of the furnace or from the outside of the den. He goes into the furnace... He goes into the den, and I believe that it was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, a theophany that was in the lion's den with Daniel, uh, that was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What what it was was just uh, what's known as a theophany. Now, the Bible reminds us, uh, in Psalm 22 what the Messiah is going to say from the cross. A thousand years before Jesus even hung on the cross, David wrote a psalm, and it said, and said this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults and say, He trusts God, but he doesn't rescue him. Uh, roaring lions open their mouths against me. See, in the Old Testament, the roaring lions were representative of the justice of God. In the book of of Amos, it says that the lion of Judah roars against violence and oppression. And I I believe that the Lord was actually there with Daniel in the den of the lions, delivering Daniel from the lions, if you please, uh, of the Medo-Persian law. Uh, delivering him from the, the, the Persian law said, hey, if, if you make a decree, you've got to follow through with it. And Jesus is the one that, that directed them and was free of that. You see, because uh, our Lord suffered so much, if you please, he went into the ultimate lion's den. We can go through smaller lion's den. We can go through more moderate troubles than our Lord endured. It's like I I can deal with disease as long as I know that the ultimate disease, which has been experienced by Christ, is death. I can deal with debt if I know that the ultimate debt, which is the price of my sin, which is death, has been dealt with by Christ. I can deal with loneliness if I know that the ultimate loneliness, which is to be cast into eternal hell, excluded forever from the presence of God, has already been dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the words Daniel means God is my judge. And I think of the words, Well, may the accuser roar of things that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. You see, I have freedom from my past, from my past indiscretions, from my past sin, for all the ugly things that I've done in my life uh, because the justice of all that I've done has been satisfied by the Lord. So in many respects, when you look at a story like this, it's freedom from the past. Uh, But it's also a story of faith in the presence. Uh, I want you to notice what it was that captured the attention of Darius. It was the example of a man who endured a set of unfair circumstances. You see, unable to stop it, what Darius did is he watched Daniel go through it, just like you're watched when you go through circumstances that you do not deserve. Now, all of a sudden, in the mystery of God's working, You become the example. You become the lesson. You become the catalyst that God uses to change the heart, to change the life of somebody else. You know, it was under the reign of Darius the Mede. He was probably a co-regent with Cyrus the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire during that time, but it was under the reign of Darius that the Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland after 70 years in exile. Uh, On the human side, Daniel's example may have helped soften Darius uh, toward the Jewish people. It's worth noting how Daniel encountered this trial. He encountered it with faith. It says in verse 23 that he simply trusted God. Uh, In the Christian life, there are three sources of trials, that, and you deal with each one of those sources of trials by faith. Uh, you're going to be tempted by Satan, no question about it. 1 Peter 5 says, resist the devil, firm in your faith. You're going to be tempted by the world. 1 John 5 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. You're going to be tempted by the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, the critical question is, how do we develop that kind of faith? And there's an old writer named A.T. Pearson. He's long gone now, but he, he said this. God's prescription for faith is know me better and you will trust me more. And that's how Daniel had the faith for this particular moment. He spent 80 years of his life knowing God. He trusted God before Aspenaz way back in chapter 1 when it came to eating the king's choice food that came from the table. He trusted God during the time where he was uh, dealt with Nebuchadnezzar when he interpreted dreams in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4. Uh, He trusted God when he dealt with Belshazzar in chapter 5. We didn't discuss him, but he was the last king of the Babylonian Empire before it fell when he read the writing uh, on the wall. So Daniel cultivated a relationship with the Lord so that when the ultimate test of his life came, he was able to trust God again in chapter 6. You don't cultivate character during a time of crisis but during a time of ease. Uh, Faith needed to trust God is cultivated when things are going well. So don't ignore corporate worship. Don't ignore spiritual formation. Don't ignore your small groups. Don't ignore the disciplines of the Christian life. You think, you know, things are going well and it's just easy to put stuff aside. But it's during those times when things are going well, when the wind of God happens to be behind your back, that you nurture the kind of faith that you're going to need, that I'm going to need during times of trouble. So it's the community of God's church. If we we just show up every single week and be with the people of God, somehow just mixing it up gives us the kind of strength and courage necessary to stand before God and honor him in the midst of the difficulty. Now, why is Daniel so effective and such a lightning rod at the very same time? Well, it's because he lives in two different worlds, uh, one eternal and one temporal. and if you live in two worlds, an eternal world that's designed with God and a, and a temporal world here on earth, you're never going to be understood completely by those who only live in one world. You know, uh, a man named Tim Keller describes something very, very insightful in, in uh, Tolkien's trilogy. He says, um, he's, you know, he talks about the two heroes. And what did I do? Oh, God, that's cool. (laughs) Anyway, uh, you know, the two heroes who are marked out as just very pedestrian people. They go off and they ally themselves with noble and angelic type beings. And with the help of these beings, the heroes enter into this quest and they emerge victorious from it. And in return, when they do return to their homeland, they discover how massively... They've been changed. Uh, their alliance with the angelic beings has given them a new greatness, where they laugh louder, feel sorrow more deeply, see further into the future, and remember the wisdom of past better than ever before. They love their homeland, but they experience out, but their whole experience out of the shire has enlarged them. And as a result, they're not completely understood by their peers because they're always going off to the seas and watching the horizon as they're hearing the sound of the waves. And then they sing, we remember we who dwell in this land beneath the trees, the starlight on the western seas. And then at the end of their lives, they cross the seas and are gone forever. And when people encounter Christ, it just reminds us of the radical change that we have. It creates an opening in us so that the very light of heaven can enter our souls. And it affects our identity. It affects our outlook in life. And we're perceived by people uh, who haven't had the same experience as being very, very different. You know, one of the things about about us here is that we can love our time on earth, that God has blessed us immeasurably. We haven't gone through the turmoil and the wars and the difficulties of so many countries that uh, are, are on our, our globe. We've begin, been given a measure of health, a measure of education, a measure of, uh, of living so that we can take advantages of all of the beauty that we have here on earth. Uh, And we love it, but at the same point in time, it's only a small part of such a bigger reality that God has waiting for us here. Then the third lesson is this. This is a story of hope for the future. You know, one of the characteristics of the miracles of the Bible is that they're not simply naked displays of the power of God. They're designed to show us something of the love of God for his people and what he has planned for them. See, when the blind are given sight and the lame walk and the deaf hear, these are are not suspensions of what the natural order is. These are, are restorations of what God had originally designed the world to be like. He's showing us how he made the world and how he's going to remake it in the future. And Daniel, sitting in the lion's den, just petting their mane, checking out their teeth, looking at them, sitting beside them, enjoying the warmth of their fur the night that they were down there. I don't know. But the idea that Daniel was there in it, it shows us the way God designed the world originally and how it's going to be restored. It says in Isaiah 6, get this, 11, excuse me, 11, 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf will reside with the lion. And the roaring lions in in Psalm 7 and in Psalm 10 symbolize just simply the disharmony of nature and God's correcting all of that. Someday he's going to restore all of that harmony. And our bodies will work right. Our nature will work right. There won't be disease. There won't be death. And for those of you who are wondering, you know, where in the world do I begin? And C.S. Lewis puts it really well. And I've read all of his stuff numerous times, but this is one of the favorite quotes I have. It says, you're never going to tame the lions in your life until you let God be the untamed lion in your life. Fear God. Live in awe of what he has done for you. And if somehow we can just fear God, then we won't fear anything else. Father, thanks for this story here. and for, It reminds us of the nature of uh, what you've called us to do here uh, during our time on earth. And that's to simply know you, get to know you better, trust you more. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the trials that you put us through. It's not that we enjoy them, we don't. But, Father, we know that if we respond to them in the right way, that we will become better men, better women, better young people, even better children. We thank you, Father, that uh, those who can't hear but uh, aren't in this room right now, but in the other rooms adjacent to us learning about you, Father, we would pray that the truth of uh, who you are and uh, what you've revealed to us would begin to to take root in these little children's hearts and minds so that, Father, they, they build a time of trust uh, for you during these formative years. We pray for our young people. Father, we thank you for Joe and what he's doing with them and uh, for the way in which uh, they're part of the worship, they're part of the team, they're part of what's going on here. And Lord, build into them in such a way that they become a Daniel. And we who are in the seniors, Father, may we live out our life with, with glory and with optimism and with joy and laughter and not crotchetiness. Father, we, we want to be the kind of people... Uh, that you create us to be, and that would be magnetic, and letting people know just by our smiles, our hellos, our words, uh, well-timed words, just, uh, Father, that we know the king of the universe. And we thank you that you have gentle ways of even making us feel uncomfortable to get us back online, and, Father, help us to be responsive to it. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I got so wound up, I forgot we've got communion. (laughs) (laughs) a good time to close our prayer uh, with time uh, I'll, I'll say a, a quick prayer and thank the Lord for dying for us and then I'd like uh, the whoever's going to help pass these out to come and I forgot what we're doing Jerry are we gonna alright thank you I'm so spaced out <laughs> please Pray for me as you're praying for yourself. (laughs) Uh, Father, we uh, thank you that you have given us this lasting reminder of your love and the substitutionary death uh, that um, uh, you endured so that we can be here uh, praising you for the life that we have. And we pray that... uh, as the elements are passed out, that uh, this will be really the the apex of our service today. Uh, That'll be the thing that we walk out of here with knowing that we've communed with you, symbolizing your body broken in death and the blood that was shed so that we might have life. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Please hold the elements and we'll drink together and eat.